Hello, it's Monday 28th of August. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, we'll be rounding up a busy August by assessing the top eight travel and talking points from the eighth month of 2023. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So we are two-thirds through 2023, how did that happen, which is the first full calendar year of travel and tourism in the region since 2019. So where are we at? Hannah and I have put together a list of August's top eight travel talking points, which will take us from Singapore to Japan, Vietnam to China, and Thailand to Indonesia. So Hannah, where should we start? Should we should we go back in time? Yeah, it's always fun to go back in time, isn't it? It always makes us feel a little bit better about where we are right now. So let's go back to August 2022, uh, I guess, to refresh everybody's minds. This was about the time that we were winding back uh, more travel restrictions. So the borders have more or less opened well, March, April kind of time, but they still had all of that testing, vaccination certificates. And as we went through towards the end of the summer last year, they started to roll those requirements back. So it's always fun to see where we are now versus where we were. Um, So if we're looking at, let's say, Cambodia. We'll just do it alphabetically, right? We'll start with Cambodia. So Cambodia, January to August last year, they... We're almost at 1 million, almost at 1 million. Um, and that was, you know, they were one of the first countries to open. Now, year to date, this is their January to July, they're at 3 million. So they, you know, they, they've, they've tripled that and they're not even at that same August period yet. If we're looking at Indonesia, um, January to August last year, they were at almost 2 million. Now they're at 5 million for the first half of the year. Philippines, again, almost 1 million. Um, This time they are at 3 million for January to July. They just crossed 3 million. Malaysia, 4 million um, last year, about this kind of time. January to May this year in Malaysia always loves to be a little bit different and announce its arrival stats a little bit later than everybody else. So January to May for Malaysia, about 7.5 million. So I presume by now that's that's moved on quite a bit. Singapore, uh, this time last year, almost 3 million. Now, January to July, 7.7 million, getting on for 8 million. Um, Thailand, and of course, we have to, (laughs) they're they're in a league of their own, aren't they? So January to July last year, they're about 4 million. So actually not that far off where Malaysia was January to May, but okay, 4 million. Um, Thailand now, is over 15 million. So well on the way for that 28 million, 30 million mark that they have um, as a target for the full year for this year. And rounding it off with Vietnam, who had almost one and a half million January to August last year. And now January to July at about six and a half million. So it's huge progress. You know, when, when you look at those small figures, some not even one million, now three million. In general, you can see most of the countries have at least tripled, um, if not more. And given the fact that we're kind of comparing January to August figures with January to July, June, May, in some cases, we've come a long way. 
Yeah, Thailand, 15.4 million, more than double any other country in the region so far this year. As you say, it's miles ahead of everywhere else. It's a remarkable comeback, I think, compared to the other mm. countries. And, you know, most of the other countries, as you said, are doing okay. Um, but, but Thailand's figures are astonishing. Uh, I think the other one, the other standout one for me there, Hannah, is Vietnam, because we know it took real long time for, for it to get going there. 1.4 million at this time last year. And now, as you said, so far this year, 6.6 million. That's a huge uplift. Um, so those are the two that, that really stand out for me, I would say. Yeah, exactly. And I think what what is really interesting is when you look at their percentages of recovery, uh, like the monthly recovery versus 2019. And I, I don't have the exact stats in front of me, but um, I've been called out for this a little bit because people are often quite surprised at the moment that Cambodia um, seems to be one of the countries who is recovering the fastest um, compared to other countries, you know, re recovering back to those 2019 levels. But it kind of highlights actually when when you are looking at just these the international arrival numbers, just the figures themselves, it can tell a completely different picture because if you then go and speak to, you know, tour operators in Siem Reap, um, they're really struggling. They're like, how how can it be that, you know, in theory on paper, we are, you know, perhaps maybe 20% off, you know, those monthly 2019 numbers, but actually we're not seeing the, the people coming in. And what you need to do is then deep dive into where those customers are coming from, where the travelers are coming from. And in Cambodia's case, there's been a huge shift um, from air passengers to land visitors. A lot of people coming from Thailand and Vietnam. And of course, those those cross-border visits are very different, very different purpose um, to those, you know, travelers flying in. So it's it's interesting, you know, you, you have those headline stats, but there, there's so much more going on underneath. Yeah, absolutely. Macro and micro. Uh, that's one thing that, you know, this this past year has really shown us. Um, just you have to dig much, much deeper into the statistics. You know, the top line figures do tell us quite a lot. But as you said there, Hannah, particularly in, in some countries, and I think also Thailand as well. I mean, we've, we've seen a, a real surge, haven't we, of, of cross-border travelers from Malaysia into Thailand, bigger numbers than there were before the pandemic. Some of those reasons are because it's just, you know, it's a bit too expensive to fly. Uh, it's a bit easier now to take the train over, over the border than it was before. Various reasons. Um, but as you say, cross-border cross travel is, is very, very different in its nature, uh, in the spending patterns and that kind of thing, uh, than people who are flying in for, for a vacation. So, talking about vacations, what holidays have we got left for 2023, Gary? What important travel periods are coming up that could make the difference for the region as we head towards the, the end of this year? So I guess there are two, really. As, you, as we said at the top of the show, you know, we're two-thirds of the way through the year. There are various holidays, you know, uh, short periods of holidays, but two really standout ones. And one is the Mid-Autumn Festival and the China Golden Week, which is upcoming at the end of September and into the first week of October. Those two holidays, Mid-Autumn Festival and the China Golden Week, almost coincide this year. Um, and I think there's a lot of expectation that we will see Chinese numbers outbound, um, you know, really start to ramp up again. Um, we've seen progression over the last three or four months, definitely from earlier in the year. You know, generally the Golden Week has been over the years uh, quite a popular holiday travel season, particularly into Southeast Asia. So I think we'll see quite strong numbers. And then the end of the year, so Christmas and New Year, but, you know, particularly in some countries of our reason, like Thailand, uh, Malaysia, you know, this is kind of the... Um, it's the, the peak season, really, isn't it? It runs through from November through about February uh, and takes in the Christmas and New Year period, also longer haul travelers as well. I guess that's going to start giving us a much better picture of, of the calendar year travel uh, and how these patterns 
uh, have changed or haven't changed at all in 2023, which, as we said at the top of the show again, you know, is, is the first full calendar year of travel. Um, things are still shifting around. Things are reshaping. Things are still kind of uh, settling down. It'll probably give us a bit of a better idea for, for planning into 2024, but I still think planning ahead for the first part of 2024 is going to be quite difficult. What do you think, Hannah? As you know, like we say, it, it, the travel patterns have, have changed so much. The economic climate is still quite uncertain. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll talk about um, Bhutan later. And is there that appetite to spend? And we keep saying that. Will that still be there by this time next year? Let's see. Um, but certainly, I think destinations are looking forward to the Mid Autumn Festival, to China's Golden Week. Um, and that will really be, uh, you know, a, a sign of whether Chinese outbound travel is coming back. Yeah, would agree with that. So let's move on to number three, Hannah. Number three takes us to Thailand. And this, it is an issue about travel and tourism, but it's also an issue about politics, economics and society. And we've been talking about this over recent months since Thailand had its general election in the middle of May. There are some developments now. It does have a new prime minister, Hannah. What do you think this means for the outlook for, for travel and tourism? Yeah, well, it's going to be fascinating, isn't it? Because it means new prime minister. It means new tourism minister as well. Um, and presumably re-looking at all of those old budgets. Um, so, you know, it, it took 100 days for Thailand to finally settle who this new prime minister is going to be. It's going to be Shreta Thai Vissen. Um, But it's very interesting where his first official visit was. So it was to Phuket. It was to Pangya um, to talk tourism, to talk also about expanding Phuket Airport. He's been talking about expanding Chiang Mai's airport. It seems like for him, tourism is going to be really important. And I think that's going to be really appreciated by tourism stakeholders who perhaps have felt a little bit um, concerned over the last few months about what a new government might mean. What does that mean for the tourism industry? But for one of those first visits to be to such a tourist reliant destination and you know talking to tourism players as well um, that looks very encouraging yeah i would agree i mean it's a difficult situation a very difficult political situation as you said all the machinations that have been involved um, the alliances that have been built up to actually form this new government is there's a huge amount of controversy um, and a huge amount of disaffection across the country as well but in the interesting thing about the new prime minister as you said, going to Phuket and talking tourism really is his first kind of agenda-setting priority. You know, that really, really echoes the previous government. Uh, you remember the, the previous prime minister, Prayut Chan-o-cha. I mean, he really made tourism about himself, didn't he? Particularly during the pandemic, it was his kind of patronage of travel and tourism. He made sure that he was front and center of what was happening. And it looks like the new prime minister is going to do the same. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just Thailand who has a new prime minister. Cambodia also got a new prime minister um, last week, um, Hun Manet, who is the ex-prime minister's son. Um, and there will be a new tourism minister in Cambodia as well. Um, so, I mean, how much um, tourism policies will shift in Cambodia, I guess, is is unclear right now. I would imagine it is not going to shift significantly. But yeah, two new prime ministers uh, in a week for the region. 
Yeah, and Thailand has has three big issues on its agenda as well. So, you know, the new prime minister, new tourism minister, and the new cabinet are going to have to sort out three big issues. One of those is the the pending tourism tax, which I know you don't think is ever going to happen, Hannah, um, but that's been on the, the books now for months and months and months. They're going to have to make a decision on that. They're also going to have to make a decision. You know, their campaign promised that they would overturn the decriminalization of marijuana. Will they go ahead with that? Uh, and if they do, what will be Phuket's response? Because because marijuana tourism is quite strong in Phuket. And then the third one is, um, is casino resorts. You know, will they actually change the constitution to allow the building of integrated resorts which have casinos in uh, Thailand? That was, again, a campaign promise that looks as though that was gaining momentum over recent months. Will it happen now? So, you know, there's a, there's a lot on the agenda for Thailand. Um, and as the prime minister is showing that, you know, he aggressively wants to expand travel and tourism, you know, those are big decisions to make. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, let's let's see how this plays out. Let's see who the new tourism minister is. And I'm, I'm sure the TAT is waiting anxiously to figure out what its allocation for budget is going to be for promotion for 2024. As all the countries around the region start to, to think about next year and what that budget allocation could look like. Yep. So number four, Hannah, should we move to Vietnam? Mm. Although this isn't just about Vietnam. This is actually a pan-ASEAN story and quite an interesting one as well. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk cross-border payment schemes. So Vietnam has, um, I suppose, finally joined the ASEAN cross-border payment scheme. Um, so there are now seven countries within ASEAN who are connected or connected or have signed memorandums of understanding. So some of these connections are already in place. Some of them are, you know, under testing or kind of medium term. So we're talking Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, Brunei and Vietnam. Um, so, you know, this just makes life a lot easier for travelers traveling within ASEAN countries. In theory, they could use those QR codes um, for payment very easily. Um, and Singapore and Malaysian regulators are actually looking to facilitate that kind of real-time fund transfers through the recipient's mobile phone number, as well as an extra step. Yeah, I mean, payments, fintech, it's, it's not the sexiest subject in the world, but it's really, really important for travel and tourism right now. And I mean, this, this cross-border payment system isn't just about travel and tourism. It's also about uh, e-commerce. It's also about people sending remittances home when they uh, work and live in other countries. So there's, there's a whole digital integration aspect here. Um, but in terms of travel and tourism, you know, it's quite interesting that the governments are now acting to move forward on digital payments because they are behind the, the private sector. And you know, we had Cherry Huang on the podcast two or three months ago. She was talking about Ali, she's from Alipay Plus, And she was talking about how that new scheme uh, with a single QR code enables users of various different digital wallets, e-payment formats from countries in our region, including Malaysia, Philippines, Indonesia, Singapore, Thailand, as well as China, Hong Kong, and Macau and South Korea you know, to make payments in different countries using their home wallet. And also, when you look at it from the government perspective, this is moving towards digital economies. This is moving towards um, digital, digital currencies, you know, central bank digital currencies. There are, I think, all of the countries in our region are looking to launch their own currency. Indonesia, probably the furthest ahead at the moment with the digital rupiah. So we're going to see huge change in the fintech and the payment space. Uh, it's happening already. And I think over the next 12 to 18 months, we'll see much, much more. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move from money to manpower. 
as always, you know, it is still in the spotlight. It is still a big issue for the industry across the region. Um, but there's been little movements here and there across the different countries as they start to, to try and find ways around that. So if we look at Singapore as a, a starting point, the acting transport minister has now estimated that aviation workers are about 95% of those pre-COVID levels, which is not too bad, especially as, you know, they, they need to have those workers in place to be able to, you know, expand the airport capacity at Changi to be able to receive those flights, to be able to add flight frequencies to be able to receive more passengers. And so it, it's really crucial to have those people in place. And it looks like they're, they're kind of getting there, 95%, not too bad. So Singapore has also added two new tourism worker occupations to those permitted to hire work permit workers. And of course, there's actually quite a big issue, uh, particularly for F&B, particularly for hotels, to be able to hire those um, foreign workers. And they've now added housekeepers and porters are able to be hired as foreign workers. So that should ease up some of those problems when it comes to Singapore being able to obtain foreign workers to come in. And then if we look at airlines, you know, Jetstar Asia being very aggressive, they're planning to hire 200 pilots and cabin crew as part of that kind of rebuilding effort. Um, and Thai Airways is planning to hire 2,000 more staff by the year end, which is um, yeah, a kind of mind-boggling number, actually. I don't quite know where they're going to find 2,000 um, aviation staff across the region. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? After so many months after the, the, the region reopened, we looked at the beginning of the show, the comparison between now and August last year in terms of visitor numbers. If we were talking between now and uh, last year, August, in terms of manpower issues, and they're still around, aren't they? They're, they're not going away. Some of those uh, residual impacts of COVID-19 are probably here to stay. Uh, and as you say, now it's now a case of how do governments, how do tourism businesses, how do airlines, how do airports, you know, all of these different uh, involved interests change these issues going forward. Because, you know, in, in Singapore, for example, like you said there, I mean, you have a very, very limited pool of workforce. And as you said, for Thai Airways, you know, looking for 2,000 staff across the region will be challenging. I'm sure it can be done, but it's going to involve, I guess, a lot of creative hiring and a lot of incentivization. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in that, you know, I, I, I think in the region, we have that added complication of people traveling elsewhere for work. You know, last week I was in um, Laos and the, the Lao Kip there has just really depreciated against the Thai Baht. So why would you, you know, if you can just hop over the border to work in Thailand, why would you stay at home in Laos and, and work for one third less? The same for Malaysia, Malaysian workers to Singapore. Um, you know, the Singapore dollar is, is worth three of a Malaysian ringgit. Uh, so it's, it's that challenge as well, isn't it, of, of workers hopping from one country um, to the other? And how, how do you balance that? Yeah, absolutely. So manpower issues is number five on our list this month, Hannah. Number six, also really a residual hangover from COVID-19, and that's about visas and the easing or otherwise of visas, and particularly for key markets. Yeah, I mean, so Thailand um, announced mid-August, really, that they decided to further ease its tourist visa requirements for Chinese visitors. Um, they're not getting you know, getting rid of that right now. I mean, even the new PM cautioned uh, over the weekend that 
you know, I think he would ideally love to get rid of that. If you're kind of reading between the lines for Chinese travelers, for for Indian travelers, but he recognizes, you know, there there are security concerns. It's it's part of a bigger picture. Um, but Thailand, anyhow, they decided to ease that. They have have slimmed down basically the number of documents that they have to that they have to submit when they're applying, um, and the application time process will also be cut from 14 to 7 working days. So it's it's definitely good progress um, with that. Philippines um, has also just launched its e-visa system. And that is really to try and ease uh, those visa requirements for Chinese travelers to come into the country. Um, so that was something you know, the tourism secretary called it a game changer for the market, just to, to bring them in at that same level as some of the other countries but there was of course a whole i mean it's one of these stories that then ended up not being a story um around philippines outbound travel because at the end of last week um there was a new guidelines released by the interagency council against trafficking which looked on the surface like outbound philippine travelers were going to have to submit lots and lots of different documents just to prove that they were tourists and you know they're, they're not being trafficked out of the country which of course is a is a huge serious issue um but you know if your your average filipino just wanting to go on holiday uh, is challenging but then the bureau of immigration announced that actually the departure procedures are pretty much unchanged. Uh, there is no no policy change. And it's, again, one of these stories where they just release things and then don't think to put context around it. So these guidelines apparently are not very different at all since 2012 guidelines. Um, so there's nothing really for them to worry about. But of course, you know, hit the press headlines, you know, outbound travelers are going to have to provide all of this stuff. And then they backtracked and said, oh, no, they're not. Yeah, visas. I mean, what an issue! It's we, we hear we, we get regular stories, don't we? And we've been talking about the the v, the e visa program in Vietnam, which hasn't been probably as successful as they would have liked. There's been website problems there. Uh, Malaysia's still talking about whether it will or it won't remove the visa access requirement for Chinese and Indian tourists. These things just go on and on. They go around in, in quite circular ways. I find it miraculous, really, that we're what at the end of August. And these issues haven't been sorted out, what, it's 18 months since since countries reopened? I mean, you know, it, it's just, it, it's unbelievable, isn't it? It is, it is. But it gives us something to talk about on the podcast, so. <laughs> so let's move on to another issue. And this one is interesting for, for several reasons, actually. Uh, it's not just a new airline, although it is a new airline. Uh, all Nippon Airways from Japan, ANA, announced, I think it was last year, that it was going to launch a, a new low-cost carrier called Air Japan. Uh, and it was going to, a lot of its focus was going to be in Southeast Asia. It's now selected Bangkok as its first destination. Um, it's going to fly six flights per week in both uh, directions from Narita in Tokyo to, to Bangkok. Now, this is quite interesting for a number of reasons, I think. One, obviously, because it's better connectivity between Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia, particularly with low-cost carriers. Uh, you know, it should. This is targeted to actually increase passenger travel in both directions. So from, from uh, Thailand to, to Japan and, and Japanese coming into Thailand. And that's interesting, Hannah, because as we said, I think it was on the last show or the show before, you know, there's this issue of a tourism deficit at the moment between Japan and Thailand. 
Yeah, I mean, and it, they were commenting, weren't they, that they anticipated that the majority of, of travellers on this flight are mainly going to be outbound Thai travellers. And then they said, and a small, small amount of uh, Japanese female travellers. I thought it was very interesting that they singled out the female travellers part from that. So, yeah, that, that's that's not going to help the tourism deficit from a, um, a Thailand point of view, but from a Japan point of view, great, right? More more connections to Japan for uh, supporting that inbound travel to there. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you think about this as a phrase under the new era of airline marketing? So Air Japan is saying, this is its quote, Air Japan will be delivered under the concept of fly thoughtful. We invite you to experience a new style of travel that allows passengers to freely select and customize their services. Oh, like AirAsia does. <laughs> <laughs> but they're not flying thoughtfully, Hannah. No, no, that, that is the difference. It's all about being thoughtful, mindful. I'm, I'm surprised they didn't use mindful, actually. That's, or that's meaningful. That's the buzzword at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you make me laugh. Um, on to Jakarta and what is not a laughing matter, um, their air pollution. So the air pollution in Jakarta, I mean, they, I think we're consistently ranked as one of the, the most polluted cities for a number of days in a row. Uh, Jokowi, the president, even got a cough. And I think that that finally was like, right, we, we can't go on um, with this level of air pollution. So they've been trying to take various measures as they've gone through August. Um, so the Environment and Forestry Ministry has shut down operation of four countries that are alleged to be running those activities that have caused major pollution in the area. They're looking at different ways to reduce air pollution, like uh, spraying dry ice over Jakarta, which I found interesting. You know, the, the usual uh, seeding clouds or they said, or drones from atop of tall buildings, a method earlier implemented in Beijing. So if you're in Jakarta, look out, there might be drones about to dump a bunch of water on your head there. Um, but they've also reintroduced work from home policies for 40 to 50% of the city's officials. So they, they are really trying to crack it. But it's, you know, as we know, it's a huge task. Yeah, it is a complex task. And, you know, even if we go back, what, 10, 12 years, you know, Jakarta's really struggled with this issue. One of the, 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 the big problems for Jakarta, I mean, we're talking about, you know, the fires and the haze and that kind of thing, but it's the traffic, you know, the static traffic and the, and the toxic air pollution that that creates. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think that was behind the government deciding to build a new capital, you know, in the middle of Borneo. So, you know, Jakarta's got these issues and, just tackling them when it gets worse isn't really going to help long term. But, you know, it, it has been pretty bad there recently. I guess what that brings us to, Hannah, is we've got a bonus topic of discussion. We've, we've got to our eight so far for this month. We've got a bonus one. And that really, I think, shows you just how complex the climate issues are right now. Issues of um, pollution, issues of climate, issues of sustainability, and where tourism actually yeah. fits into this. Uh, and as you alluded to, Hannah, we're going to go to Bhutan. So tell us a bit more. Yeah, I mean, so Bhutan, you know, famously is a country that has always really, you know, within the last decade or so, really focused on quality tourists over quantity. They have, of course, you know, previously had a daily fee that you had to pay, um, which they then announced would be, you know, it was something like $65. And then they raised this and they called it a sustainable development fee to $200 per visitor per night in September last year. Um, you know, and the plan was for that to then offset carbon that was generated by visitors. Um, and they've 
they've backtracked on that. Um, they've announced now that they're going to halve that fee. They're going to cut it to $100 from September. And that's going to be for the next four years. Um, so this this really raises some questions, doesn't it, Gary? Yeah, we were messaging about this, weren't we, at the weekend? I mean, it raises mm. a lot of questions. It raises questions about what is the limit of tourism pricing? You know, where is the actual break point where consumers just say, no, we're not going to pay that? Um, I think that's an issue that probably Southeast Asia needs to look at. I know that some of the, the tourism fees that are being put in place in the region here are, are on a lower level. But you have to be careful because there is a, a break point. Um, Bhutan is obviously much higher. It, it's a tra- it tracks different types of tourists. It does track, uh, you've been handed, it, it, it does attack, attract uh, affluent travelers simply because it's so expensive to get there and to manage your daily hotel fees and now this sustainable tourism fee as well. But I think more importantly, this actually really looks at what is the future of sustainable travel and tourism? What does it mean? And how much are people prepared to pay um, extra to have a sustainable tourism trip. Now, we've seen, haven't we, Hannah, numerous surveys over recent months saying that tourists are prepared mm-hmm. to pay more. How much? And, and are they actually really prepared to pay more? Or are they just saying that in surveys? Yeah, exactly. I mean, how many people in a survey, if it said, you know, would you prefer to choose sustainable options? <laughs> say no. <laughs> or they rephrased it, would, would you like to choose unsustainable accommodation? How many people would say, yes, yes, I, I, don't want the, I don't want the sustainable option. Give me the unsustainable option. Like, they're just not going to to say that. I mean, I believe there is a swing. There is there is definitely a swing towards people being more mindful, there we go, that word, of their impact on the environment. And, you know, there, there is that growth, no doubt, you know, at the Adventure Travel Trade Association, I see that. We see that growth in um, awareness of sustainability, both for the tourism businesses themselves doing that and the consumers. But you're right, you know, it, this this for me really raises those question marks. Like you said, uh, are people really prepared to pay that, that $200? And the fact that they have cut this down to $100 for four years, that, that's not even like they thought, okay, we'll, we'll just give it six months and see where we are in six months. That kind of means that they're rethinking that entire strategy in the medium term. I think that's the key point. I I agree with you there because so so much um, of the onus is put onto consumers. How much are they prepared to pay? What are going to be their contributions? You know, a lot of that goes to to travel suppliers as well. What about governments? You know, we we still work in, whether anybody will like to admit this or not, we still work in a volume-based industry. Uh, And if the Bhutan government has suddenly decided they're not going to get the numbers that they want, having said, you know, that they are prepared to take a, a... a lower number of visitors, but more high paying, you know, high quality tourism, as it's supposedly called. And then they reel back on that. I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah. And like you said, it has those wider implications for the region and, you know, Komodo Islands who were looking at, you know, drastically increasing their fees in Indonesia or any of the other places that are looking to do that, I'm sure are going to be looking at Bhutan and going, ha, if they can't get those affluent travellers that previously in Bhutan, like you say, is known for affluent travellers. Although, side note, I am definitely not an affluent traveller, although I have been. Um, you know, if even they're bulking at that, what does that mean for the that segment here? I think you could say it's, 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 it's big questions. And I, I felt quite disappointed that I, I saw this and feel that, you know, we're not at that, at that stage. Yeah, I think you, you may have hit the nail on the head yet there, Hannah. You know, we're not yet at that stage. I think this is going to be an interesting one to watch over the next six months or so. Maybe we'll revisit this in more detail because it is an interesting story and it does have much broader implications. 
So yeah, let's, let's watch this space. Yes. So that brings us to a close of the show for the week. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep. And as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today. We'll both be back next week when we'll be discussing the outlook for travel and tourism to and from Australia with a special guest. See you then. <laughs>